hope you take your Bibles and join me in Psalm 51. We're going to follow up about that love of God. A lot of the songs we sang this morning talked about His mercy, His grace. Let's talk about that this morning from Psalm 51. If you're joining with us for the first time, we've been going through a series on the life of David. And we've come to a section of his life that is a really, really profound, impacting, changing time in his life. Actually, it's just his life takes a totally different turn at this point. And so what's happening is we're going to be reading in Psalm 51, but we're going to be paralleling some of the story that's found in 2 Samuel chapter 12, but most of our focus here is going to be in Psalm 51. Let me tell you about a story about a gentleman who is Gil Hodges, was a, a baseball player, manager back in a number of years ago and uh, ended up in the Hall of Fame. But he talks about when he was a manager of the baseball team that one day as the manager, some of the players he got wind that they had gone out, broken the curfew that night before and weren't back at the hotel when they were supposed to be. And he didn't want to call them out in public in front of the whole team. So when they had the team meeting early that next morning, he said, fellas, said, I know that four of you were out last night and broke the curfew. You know the rules. It's a $100 fine for breaking the curfew. I don't want to call you out right now, but I will if you don't pay the $100 fine by 3 o'clock this afternoon. I'm going to have this coffee can on my desk during practice, whatever you go in, you put your $100 there. And he didn't call out those four guys. It was fine. But he said what really surprised him, by 3 o'clock when he went into his room, he had $1,100 inside that, <laughs> inside that can. There was a series of different people who felt guilty and they fessed up that way. You know, sometimes when we hear stories about people having gone through something where they feel guilty, you know, it can be funny, but most of the time it's not funny. Most of the time people who deal with guilt, people who deal with after they've done something genuinely wrong, but they're afraid to confess it, they're afraid to deal with it, they go through certain issues. They can fear. They can become angry. They can all of a sudden become depressed. They can be overcome by this idea of, of just anxiety of what if I get caught? What about this? What about that? In fact, I remember talking to a fellow who's dealing with people in their depression and all through their, through their different mental illnesses is what it's called. And that individual here in our community made comment, he says, in their institution that they deal with, if people could just get over the guilt of doing wrong, we'd probably clear out half of our patients. It happens. It happens that people come to church and they feel guilty. It happens that they're, they get into, into anger, depression. How do we deal with that? Now sometimes guilts are falsely you know, come upon us. Jay Leno talks about when he grew up, his parents were a little bit older when they had him. He had an older brother. His dad was a first-generation Italian-American. His mom had just migrated here, here uh, shortly from, what is there, Scotland is the country that she came from. And so they got married, and her husband and talked her into becoming an, an American citizen. She went into the office after she filled out all the paperwork, and as Leno tells about it, she got the test, she answered all the questions on the test, she thought right, she gave it to the judge in his private chambers, and at that time, you could not miss more than four answers on the test. If you missed five or more, your application for citizenship was denied. She was so nervous, absolutely didn't want to miss five, but when she got the test back, she had missed five. She was distraught. She walked out. She said to her husband, the judge says my application is no good. I can't become an American citizen. And she says, I've missed five. He says, let me see. I thought we went over on. He's looking at the test. And he said, you only missed four. 
And with that he took the paper and he walked right into the judge's chambers without being invited. Walked in the judge said, what are you doing here? He said, what do you think you're doing? My wife only got four answers wrong. She should be a citizen. You said she got five. And they started arguing over one question. The question was, what is the Constitution? She wrote, a boat. And the husband argued. He said, there is a boat called the Constitution. It's in the Boston Harbor at that time. The judge and he argued back and forth. That wasn't the right answer, but it is an answer. Finally, with frustration and wanting to get this guy out of the chambers, the judge said, fine, I'll accept it. She's a citizen. Well, mom just was so worried. I never did get that one right. I never did get that one right. Leno says for the rest of her life, she was afraid of every policeman she saw. They're going to come and get me. They're going to deport me back to Scotland. He said in the, in the latter part of her life when she was in her 80s, he surprised her with a trip back to her homeland in Scotland. And she didn't want to go. I'll leave and they won't let me back into the United States. And he said, Mom, it's been over 50 years. Nobody remembers your dumb answer. <laughs> now, are there moments people feel guilty over things that they really shouldn't? We understand that. We know that. That's not what we're talking about this morning. What we're talking about this morning is the idea of how to handle guilt when you have done wrong. And so that's a problem for all of us. Why? Because we all do wrong. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all struggle. So what do we do? What do we do when we offend the Lord? When we go against the Lord? When we disobey? How do we deal with the guilt? Do we just cover it up? Do we just pretend it didn't happen? Do we just move on? No, that's not the way to deal with it. Psalm 51 is going to give us a whole bunch of insights into what we should do in order to properly handle the guilt, the sin itself, so that the guilt goes away. Let me, let me walk you through the text, okay? It's a, it's a song that David wrote about his personal experiences. The experiences are recorded in 2 Samuel 12. We've talked about them the last couple of weeks that we've met that David had gotten into a really, really, really serious sin. What David had done is David stayed home when his troops were on, uh, out for battle, and David, when he was bored at late at night, he went on his roof, he saw one of the neighbors down below, the wife was out there and she was bathing at night, and he wants that woman. So he says, come up to my palace. And he's reminded, she's already married. She's Uriah, one of your faithful soldiers who's at battle. She's his wife. Well, David doesn't control himself. He brings her up to the palace. They have relationships, and she ends up pregnant. Now they've got to cover it up even more. So what happens is he calls her husband back from the battlefield, and he tries to convince the husband to go to his home and enjoy the company of his wife, and the husband refuses. On a couple different occasions, David tries. The husband refuses. So finally, to cover this up even more, David has the soldier go back to the battle with the orders that what he should do is he should, uh, he should be, be put in the very forefront of the battle and when they're assaulting this city and then the general was to move back all the troops and the husband would be killed with several others. So David indirectly commits murder. I mean, this, this is serious stuff. This is adultery, this is murder, and then he tries to cover it up. He, after several days of mourning, which we think may be up to a week, what happens is he takes the widow now and makes her one of his wives and then therefore when she has the baby several months later they can just pass it off as a premature child. And so David is happy. It's all covered up. Nobody knows 
it's all taken care of. There's no problem. However, we read in the text that it says the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And we read several statements God says where he says, you despise the commandment of the Lord. You have despised me. Where God says you have given great occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, to accuse, to attack. And so God takes action. And one of the actions God takes as a loving father who would chasten his children is God brought David under deep, serious conviction or guilt. We already read about it earlier in the service where David says, my bones waxed old. My, I, I, I couldn't rest. I couldn't sleep. When I lay down, I would see it, rehearsed it on the ceiling. I ate. I, I slept. Everything was just absolutely taken away me. No joy, no, no desire to do anything. I, I felt like I was just exhausted from the heat of the summer, you know those days where you worked outside and you're just wiped out. David says, that's the way I felt all the time. I was just in such a, a horrible you know, situation. And David responds. David says to the prophet Nathan, he says, I have sinned. The prophet responds and he says, the Lord has put away your sin. And you, you're not going to die. You deserve it, but you're not going to die. And then we move on in the story, but I want to go back and pause right there. Because I think where David says, I have sinned against the Lord, it could be the typical Hebrew writing. Oftentimes in Hebrew writing, they make a statement or they give information, but there was more to it that they might expand upon later. Like in Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. It's a simple statement. Now the rest of the chapter builds upon it. It gives further explanation. Or Genesis 1, it gives the basic idea of what happened in creation. Then Genesis 2 fills in the gaps. This happened frequently. That they would make a statement and then following up, they would add more details. It strikes me that that's what's happening here in this passage. Psalm 51 is filling in more of what David prayed when he said, I have sinned. And then, the, and then the prophet responds and says, your sins are forgiven. David recorded, David wrote what he was thinking, what was in his mind when he confesses, I have sinned. And so let's go into that section that has more information, the Psalm 51. And what do we find in Psalm 51? How to deal with sin properly to get over the guilts, number one. Okay, here's what you need to do. Number one, you need to confess your sin honestly. Confess your sin honestly. What I mean by that is not this. There are, there are different websites, there are different places you can call. If you've had a conflict with somebody, if you've done something illegal, you can call, you can confess it, and nobody will find out about it. You can just get it off your chest by telling it to a recording, and that's it. That is not what we're talking about. We're not talking about you just writing something down, I'm sorry I did this, and then you're burning it, never never honestly confessing it before those that you have offended. What we're talking about is what David does. What David does in the text is he doesn't blame others, he doesn't excuse himself, he doesn't do an Adam that says, you know, it's the woman you gave me. He doesn't water it down and say, oh, I made a mistake. What David does is he's very honest. And even though he's the king and he controls life and death. And he could have had Uriah put to death. That was his authority at that time. He was the Supreme Court. He was the ju- judge. He was everything all in, embodied in one as the king in those days. He still says, I'm accountable. I'm accountable to God. I am not this freelancing political leader. What instead, what David does in Psalm 51 is he owns the sin. 
You just watch as we go through. How David, I'm going to read it through and then we'll do more explanation. But just get a feel that David is saying, I have done wrong. Me, myself. And notice how many personal pronouns he refers to. This is me. It's not her fault. It's not the system. It's me. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness and according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight that you might be justified when you speak and be clear when you judge. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you shall make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and behold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For you desire not sacrifice, else I would have given it. You delighted not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion, and build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt you be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. It is interesting to get delve into the text and to get a sense of David speaking in his own tongue where what he does, he makes it very clear, I have done wrong. It is me and, and all the evil that is done. He uses several words repeatedly in this text for what we would call sin. He uses sin, the idea to miss the mark. He says my transgression is to go beyond a boundary that you've set for me that I violated by going where I wasn't supposed to. I trespassed. In other words, the idea is I rebelled against your authority over me. He talks about that idea of iniquity, to twist, to distort something that is good, which he did. He twisted, he distorted relationships that are good and proper in the right place. But he deceived, distorted, he perverted it. He got into terribly evil, evil sin. He talks about my blood guiltiness, the idea of doing violence against somebody in anger, in the heat of the moment. He doesn't water down his sin. He doesn't call it a mistake. He says that what I have done is evil. It is ugly. It is rotten. It is putrid in your sight. Whatever your sin may be, let's call it for what it is. If it's lying, if it's cheating, it's stealing, if it's it's, you know, taking from somebody else, if it's anger or bitterness, it is this. It is a transgression. It is despicable in the mind and the nostrils of God. You may think it's acceptable. You may have friends that think it's acceptable. But this is how David honestly comes before the Lord. He calls sin, sin. He knows how to confess. Because what he does, he not only acknowledges that what he had done is wrong, But he makes a statement, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Now you and I may struggle with that. 
What do you mean you only sinned against God? You killed Uriah. You sinned against those other families that lost husbands and brothers and fathers. How can you say against only God that you sinned? How is that possible? Remind you, I remind you that what David did is, he's true, he sinned against others, but what he's writing about is his sin. And as he's writing, he's writing song. He's writing poetry. He's putting it in a poetic form. And as he puts it into poetry, what he's doing is he's basically saying, you most of all have I offended. Let me see if I can illustrate this way. If I were to get on my knees and sing to Deb, which I will not do for two reasons. If I get on my knees, number one, I can't get up. Okay. Number two, I don't need to sing over the microphone and put the rest of you in misery. But if I were to get down and say, you alone are the love of my life. Does that mean I don't love anybody else? No, I'm asking you. Come on. You know, okay. Does that mean I, that she's the only person at all that I love? No. I love my kids. I love my grandkids. I love my family. I love you guys. But what do I mean when I say, I love you. You're the love of my life. It's a poetic way of saying... You are the ultimate. So David poetically, when he says, against thee and thee only have I sinned, it's a poetic way of saying, I just didn't do something wrong to these people. I have sinned against you, God Almighty, by what I have done. And so he doesn't even, he doesn't even hint, God, if you hadn't had Bathsheba out there that night, if you had let me fall totally asleep, not at all. He just says, what I have done, I have done. It is wrong. Then he goes on and he says, God, the reason I did it is because I was shaping an iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Oh, my word. Does this verse get abused? Does it get distorted? Does he mean that marriage relationships, sexual intimacies between husbands and wives are wrong? No, not at all. Even though some religious groups have run rampant with this passage, and said that, you know, having marital relationships, it's just very carnal, and the really spiritual people, they, they just don't practice that. That is not what this verse says at all. At all. That's not what he's implying, what he's getting at in any way, shape, or form. What he is saying very simply is, when I was conceived, and since I was conceived, I had a sin nature. I, 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 which, by the way, all of us have. All of us have this sin nature. And he's, and he's not saying what is typically said today. Oh, it's my family's fault. I, if I didn't have a dysfunctional family, I'd be okay. okay. And David did have some dysfunctional family issues. Remember his dad forgets about him? When they bring all your boys, three times they run through the list and dad has forgotten David in the field. Now, that would give some people a, you know, some angst. David couldn't say, oh, it's my parents' fault that I now struggle with this idea of lack of self-control. It's the environment. If I had had better education, if I hadn't been poor as a child, you know, then everything would be... It's not that. I'm not a sinner because of society. I'm a sinner because I was born this way. All of us are this. He says, I sinned because I'm a sinner. Not because I was ill-treated. Not because I didn't get everything that somebody else had. Not because I'm a part of a group that didn't get the same opportunities as another group. 
I sinned because I was a sinner. And as such, I didn't exercise the resistance I should have. I gave in to my flesh. You lie because you're a sinner. I get angry at cars that don't move down the road when they're supposed to. Not because they're stupid, they're idiots, but I get angry because I'm a sinner. We, we, we respond poorly because this is in our nature. And how many of us have this? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And David's not, he's not buttering this, he's not watering it down, he's not covering it up. He says, I did real evil. The reason I did real evil is it was within me and I didn't resist. It's my fault. It's not the system, it's me. I'm the one that needs the new heart. He goes on and he makes these comments that he says, this is an interesting phrase that you may not catch unless you stop and think it through. Where he says, you, so that you might be justified when you speak. What in the world does he mean by that? He is saying, when he makes this comment in verse 4, he is saying, God, you have declared that I am going to suffer consequences. Do you remember that last week? You're going to have... Your own sons are going to die. You're going to have violence in your household. You're going to have one of your sons rebel against you. David is basically saying, God, I did wrong. You are just in giving me these consequences. You are not unjust if you took my life. I deserved it. For the wages of sin is death. And so basically he's just saying, it's me. It's me. I was wrong. I deserve whatever you give me because I've done wrong. That's honest confession. That is somebody who's doing it in a very public fashion where David is saying it before his court. This song may have been published and may have been put on the radio shortly thereafter. David is saying to the community, to us after generations, he has publicly confessed his sin as far as it is known. He made confession. If you want to overcome guilt, you've got to do the same thing. You've got to be honest when it comes to confession. As far as it is known, between you and God, you've got to deal with it. Now that's why I come to the conclusion that some of you keep saying, well, how can you say David is a man after God's own heart? Because David knew how to confess sin. He didn't cover it up like we do oftentimes. David understood as he was finally brought to that point where God convicted him and he was broken. He says, I am wrong and it's not somebody else's fault. It's not, it's not, I am wrong and I've got to deal with it. You see, David isn't one of those guys that that is easily pointing out the faults in others but covering up his own or telling others what to do. You know, it's easy for him to have written psalms, written saying, you need to do this, you need to do that. David did it himself. Some of you might remember this heroic character. Bozo the Clown. Several of you are going, who in the world? Okay, when I was a kid, Bozo the Clown was real popular. I know, that's back when, before TV. Uh, Anyway, so Bozo the Clown was, you know one of the things that he did, wherever he went and he had an audience? 
he would encourage the adults, make sure that you go through different tests because cancer was just really big in, in news at that time. Please make sure you go through certain tests. Don't put it off. Don't put it off. He told other people time and time again for several years, make sure you get tested. Make sure if you have any symptoms, do something. Don't wait. Don't delay. Guess what he did? At age 41, all of a sudden he's found out he has cancer. He had never gone to the doctor until it was way too late. There are people who would sit in a church, preachers who would preach, that would tell others what they need to do when it comes to confession. But the reality is, we got to deal with ourselves in between us and God. Honestly confess. Number two, call for God's forgiveness personally. Call for God's forgiveness personally. This passage is so filled. This is, this is, to me, this section is absolutely thrilling. This is what David does. He starts off at the very beginning of the chapter and he says, he, what, I, what I need, Lord, have mercy upon me according to your loving kindness. You know what the words are that he uses? This mercy and loving kindness, it's the word for grace. Chesed, that we get grace. And you know what grace is? You know, we often talk about grace as the ideas God riches at, Christ's expense as we use the letters. Or basically grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. That's grace. But he also calls for mercy. Mercy is God withholding what we do deserve. Which one's more important? They go together. He says, God, be, give me mercy. Give me loving kindness. And then what he does is he uses multiple phrases. Again, this is a song. So you have words that are filtering all the way through. It's not sequential as much as it is just sharing the heart and repeating thoughts. And as he's going through, what you want to mark in your Bible is that the word order in the Hebrew emphasizes this idea of you. Not me, but you. God, I, I need you to do this for me. And as well, all these phrases will use an imperative. Imperatives are from the authority speaking to somebody below and it's an order, it's a command. But when it's somebody who's below speaking to the authority, it is a strong, strong plea. That's the way it works in the Hebrew. And so he's saying, please, you, oh God, you, please wash me thoroughly from my sin. Oh God, please, you, I need you, I can't do this. Baptism can't do it. Church can't do it. The priest can't do it. You need to wash me so I'm whiter than snow. And the word he uses for wash is to beat the stain out. They don't have what you and I have. They don't have the little stuff we rub on the stains. It's the idea of it takes, it takes that effort that you really have to beat the, beat the uh, clothing in the rock. Work at it. He, just, he says, please God, do this work. Cleanse me from my sin. The word he uses for cleanse is a different Hebrew word. It was the word that was used for like when lepers would come to the temple. Before they could worship, they had to be, be declared cleansed. In order to be cleansed, they had to go through the ceremonial process. And he's talking about this. Cleanse me. Make me so that I can worship you once again. Make me so that when I come to church... We don't have this distance. Though I'm pretending it's okay, God, you and I know that when I get in your presence, we're not in communion. Cleanse me so that I can come and worship. Blot out all my iniquities. A legal term, financial term. To erase all the debt. To take it away totally. All of it. No more, no more owing somebody. No more having this blemish on your record. 
Purge me with hyssop. The word purge, I, I already told you that, the word for sin is this word kata. The word for purge is akataf. Unsend me. Unsend me, God. And do it with the hyssop branch. Do you remember what the hyssop branch was? What, it, what they meant by that? If you came to do some type of sacrifice and they wanted to sprinkle you with the blood, they would use a hyssop branch. And they would sprinkle you. It's that same branch that when you were, if you were one of those Jewish people and it was the night of the death angel coming over the land of Egypt, in order to have the angel pass over you, you took the hyssop branch and you put the blood of the animal on the doorpost so they bypass you. So he's saying, please purge me, unsend me with the blood that has been shed for me. Obviously, he's referring to something that is going to be future with Jesus Christ's sacrifice. So all of this is showing several things about David. It shows us that God alone, he recognizes God alone can forgive sin. He knows as well that when God forgives sins, he does it completely. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he says, hey, to overcome this, the guilt, the genuine guilt for lying, cheating, infidelity, the genuine guilt for, for stealing somebody, ruining somebody's reputation for gossiping. In order to overcome that, you must confess and call upon God for his forgiveness. And when you call, he will respond. He will respond. So what do we do? Number three. Number three, then change your ways totally. Change your ways totally. David goes on in this text, and he makes it very clear, I want some changes in my life. I, I desperately need them. He says in verse 10, renew a right spirit. The word means to fortify, to strengthen that which has been waning, that which has been broken down. I have broken down literally a righteous spirit. I am a saved person, but what I have done is I have let the walls come a-tumbling down. God, refortify righteousness in my life. It hasn't been there for a long time. God, I want you to no longer cast me away from your presence. God, I, I, I want now that you would not remove your Holy Spirit. I need him. I need his assistance. I need his help. Restore unto me the joy of salvation. What David is saying is for these last months, I have been out of sync with you. I've been out of tune with you. I've been pretending worship. I've been pretending church. I've been pretending and, and doing things. But I have been a psalmist, a songwriter who has been songless. I've been a parent who has been inside overwhelmed by guilt and overwhelmed by anger and depression. I need a change in my life. I want you to forgive me and also put me back where I need to be. Give me strength. Give me joy. Help me to be able to move forward. Get rid of this apathy and this emptiness that has consumed me. I haven't had in these months, I haven't had a desire to share the gospel because I don't feel close to you. God, change that. Change that where I can love the way I should love. Change it so I can speak the way I'm supposed to speak. Change me, God. In fact, he goes on and he says... 
Uphold me with, he goes on, with a willing spirit. The idea literally in verse 12, and I should read it the way it's phrased there and help then give the interpretation. Uphold me with thy free spirit literally has the idea. As I understand the Hebrew, and you can see that there was some English words inserted in italics to help explain it. I think the better explanation is this, is give me a willing spirit. Uphold me, strengthen me to be willing to serve you, to say no to the sin the next time it comes. When I'm tempted to be overcome by lust, help me to say no. God, change me. I'm just, I'm so weak. I'm so listless. I, I, I have such a bent towards evil. How's it all going to take place? He uses interesting words back in verse 10 that starts this section. In verse 10, you read in your Bible, create in me. You do it. Please, please, you. Very emphatic. You create in me a clean heart. Interesting phrase. The word create is only used of God. This one word. It's the word bara. It's that idea of God creates from nothing. It's the idea that something only God can do. Give me this clean heart tells us that David wants a major change in him. I want you to change me completely, inside and out. It tells us that he realizes this is something only God can do. I can't change me. I can't reform me. You need to absolutely work a work of grace in your life. It tells us that what David is praying for is a miracle. He knows this has got to be a work of God. And he's coming and he says, I want a change in my life. I beg you. Create in me a heart that wants to do right. Fortify me. Make me willing. Oh God, please do this, grace, this miracle work in my life. He wants to grow spiritually. He just doesn't want to be forgiven. He wants to grow spiritually. Do you? When you confess, when you go and say, forgive me, forgive me, Are you also asking, change me, help me to become godly, or are you just asking him to help cover up this most recent exploit? Real repentance is turning away from the sin. Not just say, whoops, whoops, I got angry. I'm going to do it again tomorrow though. David comes to God with a genuine sense of, I have done wrong. I need you to forgive me. I need you to change me. So my ways change. So you have a problem with your temper. And you've said, oh wife, please forgive me. Oh kids, please forgive me. But do you go to God and say, oh God, please change me. Help me not to be so so quick to blow off steam. Help me not to assume the worst out of people. Help me to shut my mouth and my mind. Most of us are just content to just say, oops, I'm sorry. David, a man after God's own heart who has done heinous sin, he repents and says, change me. Create me. Here. So you come home. We are in this season. Praise God. We're in the season of sleet and snow coming up. So you come home and your driveway is covered with ice. You can't even get up the slightly sloping driveway. You go in you check the garage and oops, One of the pipes in the garage has burst. And all that water, is uh, that ice is coming from water leaking out your garage, down your driveway and freezing. So what do you do? You get that chisel out and you go out there and you scrape the ice. 
And the next day, you go and scrape the ice. And the next day, you scrape the ice. And most of us would say, how foolish. What do you do to deal with it? Fix the leak. Turn off the water. Stop the source of it. Create in me a clean heart because I was conceived in iniquity. I need you to change me, God. Change me. Number four. Number four. Contribute to others spiritually. Contribute to others spiritually. Want to overcome the guilt? Start contributing. That doesn't mean you come and take in on Sunday mornings and go home. It means you contribute to others spiritually, including those in the body of Christ that you're a part of. How does David do this? David says, Then will I teach transgressors thy way. Please do not misinterpret this. Do not interpret this that David is trying to, let's make a deal with God. He isn't saying, well, God, if you forgive me, then I will teach transgressors thy ways. So you do your thing, and in return, I'll do my thing. He's not dealing with God that way. That's not where he's pleading with God. What he is saying is, with your forgiveness, I will automatically be inclined to share this because it will be such a great miracle in my life. I will automatically want to share good news because I've experienced a change. I've experienced such forgiveness. And he says, I want to teach others. I want to teach the sinners. I want to tell them. I want to let them know. I'm going to tell them about your mercy, your grace. I want to minister. And David's thrilled about that. He writes a psalm that is very soul-bearing. By the way, you know there's one reason why you and I would say inspiration of Scripture is so real? Because Scripture reveals the realness of people's lives. Most books cover up what people have done. Does God cover up David? No. Does David cover up David? No. He's saying, this is me. And he makes this public. Why? Not to boast about sin. Have you ever heard somebody boast about their sin? Yeah. Oh, you think you'd, you could do that. You, know, you were able to drink you know, a whole keg. I can do two. You know, I can get sicker the next day than you. you know, I can have a better hangover than you. Oh, you, you stole from your employer? Oh, I steal even more from the government. How silly. David isn't writing, isn't writing to brag about sin. He's writing to help us to realize how bad it is. That if we dabble, and any one of us can like David, we talked about the last two weeks, we're not going to get away with it. It's going to multiply in our lives. So all this is written to teach sinners how to avoid it. And David says, because I've experienced forgiveness, I am compelled I have a desire to share it with family, friends, brothers, sisters, spouse, somebody else. I want to tell them about God's great grace. I need to let them know. Bottom line is, you want to help overcome your guilt? Even after you've gone to God and he's forgiven you and you still struggle, teach others about God. Teach others about his grace. Isn't that exactly what Jesus did to Peter? After Peter denied him three times, Within a few days after that, they're on the Sea of Galilee. They've gone back to fishing. Jesus has conversation with Peter. And Peter is still overwhelmed by his failures. 
And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? I really like you a lot. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? I like you a whole lot, God. I really do. Feed my lambs. Peter, do you really, do you really like me? I, I really, really, really do like you. Then what you need to do is serve. If I've forgiven you, God says, you tell others. You not keep it to yourself. Not walk out of here saying, oh, I'm so thankful I'm forgiven. I'm so glad that God has restored me. But I'm never telling anybody else about this good news. You and I would think it's absolutely heinous that if somebody found a cure for cancer, that they would keep it just for themselves. We would be aghast to find out that somebody who could solve some of that, something so tragic. And you've got the message that cures the greatest of all diseases, sin. Tell somebody. Share it. Teach. Contribute. Get involved in ways of being able to exalt God, to be able to tell others in a class, in choir, in some type of message, in a reenactment. Take opportunity to minister to others. Don't let Satan convince you, tell you a lie, that because you sinned, God can't use you. That's just not true. God can use you. God uses sinners who have been forgiven. And thank God he does. Number five, concentrate on God earnestly. Concentrate on God earnestly. What I mean by that is this, that as he winds down this section, he makes this comment, he says, open my lips, my mouth shall show forth thy praise. And then he talks about sacrifices, how you want more than just sacrifices. Modern day, I want more than just coming to church and putting something in the offering plate. I want, David says, you want, you want something more. You want a contrite heart. L- let me walk through this. Where David is talking about giving God praise, it makes so much sense. So therapeutic. What David understands is, as a musician, he knows the power of music. He knows how we can take it with us all the time. How we remember better with music. He says, what I want you to do, he says, for me, what I'm going to do is I'm going to use music to help me overcome the guilts when I start to feel like I'm a bum again. It goes like this. You've sinned against God. You've, you've asked God, family, others to forgive you. They've forgiven you. You want to move forward, but your mind, your enemy, keeps on bringing up your past to you. And you start replaying, ah, I wish I hadn't done that. Man, I was so stupid by doing that. How could I have done that thing? How do you stop the replay? How do you stop rehearsing it again and again and again? Music. Music is a tool, he says here. Shift your thinking from your guilt to God's grace. When you've been forgiven, according to God, it's been forgotten. But you keep on hanging on to it. What you do is you replace in your mind, you replace the thoughts of guilt and rehearsing what you did, replace it with praise to God. So all of a sudden, when you feel guilty again about something that you've done and you've gone to the Lord, you've asked Him to forgive you, when all of a sudden it comes back and haunts you. 
The enemy is trying to put an anchor in your life, trying to discourage you, trying to get you to, real, to think you can't possibly serve because you did this in the past. Replace the thought immediately with songs of praise. Great is thy faithfulness. Amazing grace. The blood of Christ. You know, the love of God. Replace, start singing about God. Stop thinking about yourself. And David says, it's going to work for me. I'm going to rehearse God. I'm going to give him praise instead of, you know, this, re, this guilt that oh, I'm hanging on to. I forget the things which are behind and I press towards the mark of the high calling of Christ Jesus. I move forward. And to help me to move forward are songs and hymns and praises to get my mind focused where it should be and not be discouraged. But he goes on and he talks about something else. He says, I am going to give you praise and exalt you in worship once again. It's been pretend for the last few months. It's been make-believe. But David says, I know, I recognize, I went through this. I know you don't delight in sacrifices. He isn't saying that God doesn't want any. That's not what he's saying at all. Because at the end of the chapter he says, I'm going to bring sacrifices. You're going to delight in them. In the last verse. What he is saying is, I know that when I come, when I came to you and I would worship, but I was harboring secret sin. I knew that my sacrifices were worthless. I knew my offering was worthless. I knew my singing praise was worthless because you didn't want this outward appearance of worship. You want a broken and contrite heart. You want me right with you. Not just going through ritual. Not just going through the monotony of, of a service and singing the songs. You wanted me to be close to you. And he says, so you forgave me. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to return to that place of worship. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to get involved with it. So God, you rebuild these walls. God, you be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with the burnt offering that comes from a heart that is, that is in gr gratitude and overwhelmed by your grace. And I'm going to bring those things. I will bring my offering. I will bring my songs of praise. And I will worship you. And I will exalt you. And I will praise you in a public venue because of your grace and goodness to me. I'm going to sing his mercy is more. I'm going to sing it as well with my soul. I'm going to sing and exalt that you loved me before I loved you. I'm going to concentrate on your goodness and your grace. I'm going to take time to focus on God. So why do we gather on Sunday morning? Because we have to. That's a real shame if you think that. That's a real shame. Young person, old person, whatever your age... If you come to church because you just have to, I feel sorry for you. That's a real shame because you haven't fully appreciated the grace of God. It is the love of God that motivates us to come and worship. It is the grace of God that allows us sinful creatures to come and praise him for him to meet with us. It's not us. We're not that fantastic of a church. Don't take this wrong. But look around. We're not that beautiful. We're not that rich. 
You know, I, I, our choir, our music, it's beautiful, but it's not that great like the angels. God doesn't owe us a thing to have to work, meet with us. But he does because he loves us. Because he wants to shed grace. And out of gratitude, what do we do? We should be coming Sunday after Sunday overwhelmed by the fact that he would forgive us of our sins. That he would allow me to sing with my cracking voice glory to him and he would accept it. That he would take our meager offerings, our meager praises. The angels could do a whole lot better than us, folk. It's grace. Oh, and I'm, I'm blown away by the fact of how God is so gracious to us. Let me read you a true story. I received a call from a friend of mine named Kenny. He and his family had just returned from Disney. And he told me, I saw a sight I will never forget. I want to tell you about it. We were inside Cinderella's castle. It was packed with kids and parents. Suddenly, all the children rushed to one side of the room. Had it been a boat, the castle would have tipped over. Cinderella had entered the room. Cinderella, the pristine princess. Kenny said that, my friend said that she was perfectly typecast, a gorgeous young girl with each hair in place, flawless skin, and a beaming smile. She stood waist deep in a garden of kids, each wanting to touch and to be touched by her. For some reason, my friend turned and looked towards the other side of the castle, and now that side of the room was vacant except for one boy and his family. His age was hard to determine because of the disfigurement. He stood watching quietly and wistfully, holding the hand of an older brother. You know what he wanted, don't you? He wanted to be with the other children. He longed to be in the middle of the kids reaching for Cinderella, calling her name. But can't you feel his fear? Fear of yet another rejection? Fear of being taunted again? Fear of her ignoring him? Don't you wish Cinderella would go to him? Well, guess what? She did. She noticed that little boy across the room and she immediately began walking in his direction. Politely but firmly inching through the crowd of children, she finally broke free. She walked quickly across the floor and knelt at eye level with the stunned little boy and gave him the hug of his life. My friend wrote and said, I thought you would appreciate the story. I did. It reminded me of another one. The names are different, but the story is almost the same. Rather than a princess of Disney, it's about the prince of peace. Rather than a boy in a castle, it's us. In both cases, a gift was given. In both cases, love was shared. In both cases, the lovely one performed a gesture beyond words. But Jesus did much more than Cinderella. Oh, so much more. Cinderella only gave a hug. When she stood to leave, she took her beauty with her. The boy was still deformed. But what if Cinderella had done what Jesus did? What if she assumed his state? What if she had somehow given him her beauty and taken on his disfigurement? That's what Jesus has done for us. He took our suffering on him and felt our pain for us. He was wounded for the wrong we did. He was crushed for the evil we'd done. The punishment which made us well was given to him 
And we are healed because of his wounds. Make no mistake. Jesus gave more than a kiss. He gave us his beauty. He paid more than a visit. He paid for our mistakes and our sins. He took more than a minute. He gave us a lifetime. And for that reason, we worship him. We sing of him. We are amazed by him.